In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus traveled around Galilee, teaching and healing. Crowds gathered and followed him. Jesus went up on a mountain and taught the most famous sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. In this sermon, he starts with eight statements that all begin with the word blessed. Join us as we journey through these eight descriptions that show where true joy and abundant life can be found. All right, hey everybody, welcome to Grace Life. Do me a favor, help me welcome all of our first time guests. So glad to have you guys worshiping with us, whether you are online at home or here in this very crowded room. Wow, hey guys. Uh, hope you've found some room for yourself there. Hey, before we go any further and get into the message, I uh, want to remind you we have First Step right after this service. So for those of you online, simply text First Step to the number on the screen. We'll send you a link. We have an online version for you. And uh, for those of you here in the room, if you have never been to First Step, if you're new to Grace Life, I want to encourage you. It's right down the hall. As soon as this service is over, free lunch, free child care. We've solved all of those problems for you. Those of you online, we did not send you a babysitter. Sorry, you're on your own. But here in the room, it gives us an opportunity to talk about who we are, what we believe, why we do it, maybe ask some questions, have a conversation. I'd love to get to know you better. So if you've never been, want to invite you right after this service. Well, with that being said, let's get into the message today. We are in a series we've been doing on the Beatitudes. And uh, the series is simply called Blessed because these Beatitudes are actually the first eight statements that Jesus made as he began his most famous teaching. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. If you've never heard of that or read it, I would encourage everybody at some point, maybe during the series will be a great time, to, to actually read the Sermon on the Mount in one sitting. Like imagine you come up, you sit on the ground and Jesus starts talking. Like imagine all of that in context because quite often we'll memorize one Bible verse or we'll remember one story, but we don't know what was happening around it. And, and so for you and me, it's in our Bible, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So maybe sometimes sit down and just read that. Three chapters, pretty short, won't take too long. But he began with these eight statements of what a blessed life looks like because every statement begins with some form of blessed or those. And then he goes on to describe eight kingdom virtues. And I think all of us would say we want a blessed life, right? Anybody in here does not want a blessed life? I hope that's not, yeah, there you go. We all want a blessed life. And so what we need to understand, if we're going to go after the blessed life, Jesus is describing two very important things. The first one, it is the eight virtues that Jesus is describing as he begins this teaching. They're very different from humanity's virtues, from cultural virtues. And so some of us are going to have to make some choices because there are things that we've been raised to believe and, and ways to act that are going to be opposite of what Jesus is encouraging us to do. The second one is I want to remind us that we need to bring all eight of these into our lives. This is not something where, like your high school report card, you, you make an A in math and tell your mom not to look at the English grade because you're a math kind of kid, you know? And we tend to do that, like, okay, there are eight. I'm gonna try to get one of them good and one of them okay, and the rest I'll just leave to somebody else. Doesn't work that way. We wanna make sure that we have all of them in our lives because that is exactly what Jesus intended in order to live this blessed life. So if you've missed any of them, the good news, they're on our website or app. Today we're on number four, and that's where we're going to start. But before we do, I want to ask you a question that will help us understand what Jesus is talking about today. I want everybody here to think of a time that you would say you were hungry. Think about the last time you were hungry. Or, and maybe for us, because we're not always hungry hungry, um, maybe it's, think of something you were hungry for, something very specific, like we would use the word craving, Right? Yeah, and then think about this. What lengths did you go to to solve that dilemma? So I grew up in what I would call the McDonald's generation. 
You know, some of you are too young for this, but if you go back a couple of decades, okay, three or four decades, I am older than that, sorry. But for people like me, if you go back about four decades when we were kids, if you wanted a cheeseburger, you went to a place called McDonald's. Now see, today you may still go to McDonald's, but it's not because you're craving a cheeseburger. That's, that's just not what you would do. And, and so when I was growing up, the only question if you wanted a cheeseburger was do you want the round one from McDonald's or the square one from Wendy's? That was kind of your, your choice. And so actually there was something that is so normal in our world today that young people will be like, I can't believe y'all were raised that way. But it was a new thing when I was growing up called gourmet hamburgers where you could actually have something special and people took effort at doing this thing and, and we just didn't have that. Now everywhere we go today, you know, they've got like a, a whole list of how you can have your hamburger made and all this sort of stuff. But when I was growing up, this was, this was rare. Matter of fact, there was a new restaurant. It was kind of a chain that was popping up in just the big cities, maybe the, the tourist places where people would go if they were on a trip. And this place was special because it allowed you to order your meat like types of meat, and it allowed you to order the amount of meat. How big do you want your burger to be? It allowed you to order your meat like a steak. Like, I would like it medium rare and about a half pound, eight ounces, please. You try that at McDonald's, they're gonna laugh at you just for the record. Hey, could I have an eight ounce burger back there cooked medium rare with your special sauce? They are gonna laugh at you. They're probably gonna do something else behind the scenes because I used to work at McDonald's when I was in high school, so I do know. But anyway, just kidding. And so anyway, here's the point to that. At this point in, in college, we, we love to do road trips. Everybody loved road trips in college, right? And so some friends of mine and I, we were talking about these cheeseburgers, and we were kind of getting to where we had a craving, and we needed to do something about the craving. And we, we had the perfect reason to do something about it because we had a friend of ours that had grown up in, uh, we'll just say, a, a religious group of people that did not allow the eating of meat, and uh, so once she had come to college, she started coming to our church and found out there was freedom in Jesus. She could have more than hummus, and uh, life was good for her. And so she wanted to have her first cheeseburger. And we're going, you cannot have your first cheeseburger of your entire life at McDonald's. I mean, that's okay for a four-year-old, but it is not okay for an 18-year-old. Like, friends don't let friends go to McDonald's. That's just not how that works. And so we decided to, to arrange this road trip where we were going to get our craving met and she was going to get the first cheeseburger of her entire life. The problem is that required a two-hour drive each direction. That's the length that we went to to get our hunger fulfilled. So obviously, you know, I'm about to turn that spiritual and ask, what are you hungry for spiritually? And what lengths are you going to to get that hunger met? I think a lot of Christians would say they're hungry for some things like more of God's blessing. Well, that's what this whole series is about. That's why you keep coming back. Yeah, I'd love more of a blessed life. That's a great thing. Some of us would say, I want more answers to prayer. I want to see more of God's power in my life. Some of us would say, I, I want a greater spiritual experience. And you would tell us how you're going about getting that into your life. Some would say, I, I want more Bible knowledge. And you would tell us the plan you have for studying this and learning more about it. And, and all of those are good. And as good as those things are, in the fourth beatitude, Jesus tells us to go after one thing above all. It's in Matthew chapter five, verse six, if you're following. If not, it'll be on the screen right here. And he simply says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. And, and some versions will say satisfied, and, and both are equal translations, so we're not gonna spend any time on that word today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
they'll be filled. And, and the problem that you and I have is we have no point of reference, no context for what Jesus was trying to communicate through hunger and thirst right here. Because even when I asked you, like, tell me of a time when you were hungry, I mean, you're, the example that came to mind was probably pretty silly. The truth is, for most of us, we've never experienced hunger. It's just our reality. Most of us, we eat for pleasure, not for sustenance. We, we go to restaurants where they have seven-page menus, and if they don't have what we want, we're like, that's okay, I'll just wait till later. Because we're not starving. We're not hungry, hungry. There may be a few of you, you've got a, an experience when you were deployed in a situation where food was not readily available. Some of you may have grown up in a, a different government and cultural context in another world. My wife grew up in a communist nation. And so some of us will have a, a memory or a past story. But very few of us will say, I get to eat maybe once a day on good days. And even that is more of a sustenance kind of thing. It's not a a pleasure kind of thing. Most of us don't understand the, the point that Jesus was trying to make. See, the people he was speaking to 2,000 years ago, uh, they, they ate mainly for survival and sustenance. I mean, they had weddings and they had feasts. They had good days. But for the most part, it was, what do I need to do? I've got to go work. How much energy do I need to work? And so these people understood. Matter of fact, there's the story of Jesus miraculously feeding 5,000 people from just a little bit of fish and bread. And the reason that he had to do that is because there were 5,000 people that were more focused on what he was saying than the fact that they had no food and they had traveled miles. Some of them had traveled days and it was hot. It was the Middle East. Nobody had little bags of Cheetos or, or Slim Jim sticks or, or, or anything like that. There was not a Coke machine with Dasani water bottles. These people actually understood what it was like to be hungry. And the concern for them was that they would actually faint along the way. That's how hungry and thirsty they were. They weren't just going to have a grumbling stomach. When, when we say we're hungry, all we know is that our stomach tells us we're 15 minutes off of our feeding schedule. We skipped our Snickers. How dare you? And that's our point. And so when he talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness in the Middle East on a hot day with no trees for them to be sitting under, they almost leaned forward like, Hunger and thirst for what? They, they get it, and you and I don't. So we're gonna change the words for our context, if that's okay. I'm not gonna rewrite the Bible. I'm just gonna help you understand it in a way that matters to us. So when I was first thinking about this in my notes, I put the word yearn. Like, that's what that would really mean. We yearn for something. The problem is you don't use that word either. If any of you do, we think you're weird. If you come and go, I am yearning for a good cup of coffee today. Can you point me to the, I mean, no, no, no. We're gonna be like, okay, you go get one. I'm stepping over here. Yeah, Cause they're just weird if you're yearning for coffee out in the lobby. For us, I think the best thing we can do is use the words obsessed. When we're obsessed with something. Like we, we just can't go on until we get it. Like we've gotta have it. Like everything depends upon us getting this. You know, kind of like when Wi-Fi is not working. Right, we're obsessed with Wi-Fi. If everybody's phones right now just quit working, all of your carrier signals died, the Wi-Fi quit working, you would all freak out. It would not matter what I had to say. You would be done. You'd be getting in a car, driving to the Verizon store, or something like that, because you'd be obsessed with getting your phone back to work. So maybe that's our point of reference is being obsessed with something. Like you decide you're gonna buy a new house, and now you suddenly don't even care about sleep. You're on Zillow until 2 a.m., you give up an entire Saturday. Even guys give up all of a college football Saturday. They miss every single game because they're excited about whether or not the house will have a man cave and the garage will be big enough. And if they don't go house shopping, it's not gonna be the way they want. So, so the wife is on Zillow and looking for it and the guy's like, gotta make sure I got a man cave kind of thing. And so that's the way that we're going to 
prove that we're hungry for something. And Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. So there you go. That is the best that I can do to convey to you the idea uh, of trying to be hungry, to be obsessed with something, because that's what he wants to be in our head. Now we're going to move to the point. What are we supposed to be obsessed with? What are we supposed to be hungering and thirsting for? It is righteousness. And if you've ever been here at Grace Life where we come across that word in a verse, because it is a big church word, most of us don't use it. Uh, if we ever do use the word righteous, usually it's when we call someone self-righteous in a rant, but we probably couldn't define it. We've just heard it used against someone. So I always like to explain righteousness, being righteous simply means being right with God. And, and it's a great uh, short, quick explanation. But for today, we're gonna dig a lot deeper because as Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, at this point, what he's trying to convey is all that righteousness can bring into our lives. So if we were to look from the beginning to the end of the Bible and, and try to understand all of the biblical idea of righteousness, there are four aspects of righteousness. And, and I think Jesus meant that we should hunger and thirst for all of them and want them in our lives. And so here we go. I'm gonna give you the four aspects that Jesus was telling us to be hungry for in our lives. The first one goes like this. It's called legal righteousness. And, and the reason I say legal, I'm not referring to an American court system or any other country. I'm referring to the spiritual one, the heavenly one. You see, the Bible also tells us not only is God our loving Father, but he is a righteous judge who sits upon a throne. And, and so what we're talking about is the legal difference between earning heaven or earning hell. What we're talking about is the fact that our God is holy, our God is just, and we are not. We say things that are not godly. We do things God wouldn't do or want us to do. We act in ways that Jesus wouldn't act. And so the word that we use to describe all of those differences between us and God, the things we do that God would not, is sin. So the problem is legally, in a spiritual court that is righteous, you and I are offenders. We have a legal debt to be paid. Now there is one solution, and that is that you can die because the penalty for sins is the shedding of blood and death. You can die, you can pay for your sins, but you'll spend eternity doing it. But here's the good news, everybody. Two of my favorite words in the Bible show up in the book of Ephesians. But God, but God, being rich in his mercy, said, I made you, I love you, so I don't like the first choice. I'm gonna give you another one. I'm gonna send my son Jesus. He's gonna live a perfect life. He's gonna die on the cross for you. So that when his blood is shed, it will pay for your sins, and then you will be forgiven. You can spend eternity in heaven. That is what God did for you and me to make us legally right with him. You guys follow me? How awesome is this, right? That deserved a little bit of an amen. Somebody's with me on this one. A lot of people going to heaven, not hell today. That's a, yeah. Okay, anyway. So what happens at this point, though, is that every single one of us has to recognize that we're legally wrong with God and we need to be legally right with God. You see, that hunger, as Jesus is talking about, hunger and thirst for this, if you are hungry for it, let me tell you what it feels like so you'll know if you are. You feel guilt. You feel not good enough. You feel ashamed. And on top of what you feel, you've got the devil whispering in your ear because he's the accuser of God's children. You're not good enough. Even God can't forgive that. Even God couldn't love you. Nobody could love you if they knew who you really were. And the worst lie that he whispers, and he seems to whisper it a lot today, it'd be better if you weren't alive. 
Can I just tell you, all of those are lies from the devil, from the pit of hell. And if you're hearing any of them, please do not act on them. They are not true. They are not from God. They are evil lies. But that is what you're feeling. You're feeling hunger. Hunger to be right with God. And the good news is all it does is it takes an exchange. We call it salvation. That's the, the Bible word. That's the church word for it, meaning I'm saved. And being saved from the, the legal punishment that I deserve. And now I get something that I don't deserve. And that is forgiveness and eternal life. See, if you could imagine this, that the list of everything you've ever done wrong being written down and kept and the devil seeing if he could add to it, except unfortunately we already know what it is. And, and, and God knows everything there. But imagine, see, when you say, Jesus, I need you, will you save me? Will you forgive me? Will you be my Lord and Savior? When you take that step here at Grace Life, we like to use the words king and say, Jesus, will you be my king? Because we recognize it's not our life anymore. It's his. When you take that step, what happens is the blood of Jesus washes over this list. And even though it is red blood and black writing, it turns out to be a blank white sheet of paper what he's done. Come on, that deserves an amen too, doesn't it? That's what's cool. So here's the thing. Jesus says, you need to hunger and thirst to be right with your God. And at his point of saying this, he knows, hey, folks, it's only a short period of time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this because Jesus has done all the hard work. It, this is the easiest one of the four for us to achieve. This is, this is the one that we can just say, done. We can make that happen simply by saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Before we leave today, before you log off, for those of you online, we are going to make sure anybody who wants to be legally right with God takes that step and can do so. Now, there's a word for this, and I want to show you something uh, in 1 Corinthians because the Bible word for this is justified. And, and so look at this, 1 Corinthians 6 says, and such were some of you, and uh, it was talking about the way we used to live our lives, and so I, to make it clear for us, I put in parentheses what they're talking about. Sinners, y'all, we're sinners. We were sinners, there you go. So he says, look, some of you were sinners. You, that's what you were. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What that means is that the moment that you said, Jesus, I need you, will you save me? In that spiritual heavenly realm, a righteous judge, God in heaven, sits upon his throne as your list is washed from black to red to white. A gavel hits and says, Brian, you're justified. You're right with me. Every sin you've ever done, yesterday, today, tomorrow, every single one of them, Kent, you are forgiven. You are right with me. It, it's, you are justified. It is instantaneous, legally right with God. And this same verse points to the second type of righteousness. There's another word. I want you to look at it again. It says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Another church word, So, uh, just to make sure we all understand this, justified is immediate. And as soon as you receive Jesus, you are forgiven and, and you are legally right with God. But we might not be relationally right with God. The second type of righteousness is what we call moral righteousness. See, this word sanctified is a lifelong process to become more like God. What we're talking about here with moral righteousness is what's in our heart and what comes out of us because of what's in our heart. You see, the more that we become like God, that's what this is about. Sanctified is becoming more like God. That what we say is what God would say. What we do is what God would do. The way we act is the way God would act. That is what being sanctified is talking about. And the idea is that God has revealed himself and his expectations for us through his word. 
And so we simply begin to conform to what he says. And what we recognize is there's something in here we will read and not like. I believe that every single one of us, I've, I've never met someone who just got saved, said, I already love everything in here. It doesn't happen. Every one of us at some point, right when we come to God, recognizes there's a whole lot of stuff in here that I don't like. It doesn't describe me. But what we do is we read it and go, hmm, I don't like that. But God is God and I'm not, so I guess I'm the one that will move. And every time we move and take a step and change, we're becoming sanctified. We're becoming more and more like God. And the reason that moral righteousness is so important the reason that we hunger for it is because it really affects two very important things day to day. You see, the first one, legal righteousness, is about going to heaven. Moral righteousness is about the life we live between now and heaven. How many of you have met somebody? Maybe you go to church with them. I'm just kidding because I'm sure we don't. But you've met somebody that is going to heaven, but you sure don't want to spend any more time with them before we get there, right? I mean, come on, y'all know those people? Yeah? We might be that person. Anyway, just kidding. Here's the point. One of the things that is affected is our relational experience with God. Because the way that we live our lives, if we are more like God or less like God, will determine there are only two choices. Are we pleasing to God or are we offensive to God? And people who are pleasing to God are going to have a greater relational experience with him, just like you would with any other human. And people who are offensive to him are going to have less than of an experience with him. Now, do not misunderstand theology, everybody. God is everywhere. And wherever he is, you're, I'm not saying that you can go away from God. I'm just saying that your experience may not be as rich as what you want. I believe every one of us wants a rich experience with God. I believe every one of us wants to, to pray and actually know that God answers prayer and believe that he did. I believe every one of us wants to talk to God and hear his voice. I believe people want to be healed and touched by God. I believe people want God to be alive and active in their lives. Amen? Come on, somebody. Here's the thing, if we're living something that is so opposed to who he is and what he wants, he's there, but your relationship with him is not what you want it to be. Let me give you an illustration. I've got a friend of mine, and we are still friends. We work through the story I'm about to tell you, but uh, we ha had a trip we had to do. We were actually working together on some projects and driving all across the state of South Carolina every day doing things, and as we were on the way home one day, he just decided to exert his power over his own car. We were in his car, and he loves country music, and I do not, because I've been set free of demonic influence. And, <laughs> and so he decides to turn country music on as loud as he can the whole way home. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, if this was the age of Uber, I would have found a different way home. I would have been out of the car on the side of the interstate, but it was not, and I was trapped. And once again, theologically, we were there in the van together, but what you need to know is our relationship did not grow during that time. No one was smiling. No one was happy. We were close enough to touch each other, but we did not speak. I didn't hear his voice. He didn't hear mine. We didn't share any stories about the depths of our soul and say, oh, that is amazing. I'm so glad to know that about you. We had zero relational experience because he was intentionally being offensive to me. And it's what we do to God. And we say, I don't understand why why I'm, I'm not hearing his voice in prayer or doing this or doing that. And well, quite often we have heard his voice and we ignored it and didn't do what he said whenever that was. And the second thing that it affects is our life experience or our relational experience with God, but also our life experience because everything that God has told us that he wants from us, you see, all this is, can I simplify this for everybody? This is God's revelation of himself to his creation and his expectation for his creation. 
This is who God is and what he wants from us. That, that's, that's what this is. And everything that he says, he says comes with either a blessing or a consequence. And when we bring the blessing into our lives, that's the life experience we have. On the other hand, we say, yeah, God, I know your word says, but. Then we end up with a life experience that's not as much fun. Perfect example, something like forgiveness. God says, look, you're forgiven, so forgive, but we don't forgive. So then we end up stressed and bitter in our heart. We're angry, we lose sleep, we go to a doctor, and we acid reflux and everything. And I don't have an answer for you, is what the doctor will tell you, because your problem isn't medical. Your problem is your life experience is less than because we're doing it our way instead of God's way. We're not being sanctified. You see, you can get saved and never move a step closer towards God. And there are people every single day that would call themselves a Christian, but they're not becoming more like him. Now, the first two aspects of righteousness are individual. Everyone right now could say, okay, I've got something to work on. I hope you do. And I'm good for lunch. I've got this because I've given you the two types of righteousness you can pursue in your life on your own for you. And the two parts that are left, they bring us all together. It's how God's righteousness is played out with all of us. And then the third one, we as theologians refer to as social righteousness. It, it is talking about how we see our world being right with God. And, and when we look around, what that means is that as we would open our eyes and see the world around us, we would see God's justice and we would see the absence of oppression from, for, all, for all of mankind. Now, would anybody look at the world we live in today and say that they see God's justice ruling and complete absence of oppression for all mankind? No. I need to be a little touchy on this. This one is gonna be touchy, if that's okay. I'm gonna ask for some leeway if I'm your pastor because I need to speak to the difficulty of what we see in our world today as compared to what we're hungry for. And there's nothing, I, any, whatever I say, let me put it this way, anything that I say is going to uh, be difficult for at least someone. Someone's gonna be a little uncomfortable with something I say. So uh, as I touch on what it means to bring God's social righteousness into our world, will y'all give me a little space? Is that okay? I, I only got like two of you agreeing to that. The rest of you could have tomatoes or something to throw. Um, here, here's, here's the point. If we look at our world today, we see the absence of those. We see corruption in government officials, all parties, everything. I'm not even beginning to pick on just one. Every, matter of fact, we see hypocrisy, right? And you wanna know the truth? We used to complain when they were hypocrites. Now we're, we're glad if that's the only problem they have. It's like, it's one thing you're a hypocrite. It's the other, you're a crook. Like, you should be in jail. No, okay, anyway, so we, we, we see racism. We, we see sexism. We see abortion, and some of you really don't like me putting that on the list, but if we want to talk about oppression, I mean, when 68 million people don't even get a chance to their own life, that's fairly oppressed, at least according to God's word. So we see a world that is very broken. And as we look, especially at our context, for the last year and a half to two years, the issues of this oppression and lack of God's justice ruling our world has been raised like, well, raised greater than any time in my lifetime. But sadly to say, I think most of you would agree with this, a lot of attention has been brought to it, but very few solutions. I don't know of anybody, I don't see it on social media, I don't see it in any news outlet that says, thank God what we've achieved in the last 12 months. 
Actually, they're still saying, most everyone, that the problems are as big as they've ever been. And it comes down to this. Many are fighting for social improvement. But social improvement is not social righteousness. Two completely different things. You see, social improvement is when humans talk to humans, when humans talk about humans, when humans fight with humans, humans elect humans so that humans will make laws that all of humans will follow that means humans will treat each other fairly and nice and everything will be great with all humans. You don't know the problem with that? There was no God anywhere and humans are still sinful. What we have seen for centuries, millennia throughout world history, decades in our country and even recently, is a whole lot of humanity fighting for social improvement, but it is all devoid of God's justice, the way that God would bring it. We're not putting God at the center of it, so we're not getting what we're hungry for, which is social righteousness, meaning our society is right with God. That means that I treat you the way that God would have me treat you. You treat me. I see you the way that God sees you. That, that I, I mean, can, can we just begin to ask what if the world would be like if actually every one of us was godly as God would be towards everyone else? If we looked at someone and we didn't suddenly put them in a box because of their love for country music or their race or their, their, their gender or anything else and said, I see you that way, I'm gonna treat you that way, which might be worse than you deserve. What if every one of us said, I see you for how God sees you, I treat you the way God would treat you because I choose to bring righteousness into our society. Can, can you just imagine what that would be like? You see, that's what we're hungry for. And you can tell we're hungry by the anger that you see in our world today. I believe in many cases, in most cases, it's actually a righteous anger. Not all the responses are righteous, don't misunderstand me. But I think the anger at the lack of God at the center and God's justice and God's treatment towards one another, I think the anger over that's righteous. It's not the world that God designed for us. The world you and I live in is not the world God designed. God designed male and female. God designed black, white, brown, and all kinds of beauty in the world. God designed, and we have taken everything God designed and we have abused it, and we're hungry. We are so hungry. Even non-believers are so hungry for a world that is socially righteous, where everybody treats each other, sees each other as God would have them. Now, here's the problem. Our world is broken, and therefore, we can fight for this and should. We need to go after this, but we'll never see it completely, perfectly, because it's a broken earth and sinful humans. You guys understand that? And so what it actually does is it points to the fourth kind of righteousness that we're supposed to go after because the good news is all that we're hungry for, all of the frustrations we see in our world, they will be solved. That's the good news, everybody. And it's called future righteousness. You see, this is going to come to an end. Jesus is going to return and he's gonna restore everything that is broken. Second Peter says it this way, but we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth that he's promised us, where everything that is broken will be removed, all the corruption will be gone, where everything will either be restored or replaced, that's a whole other theological debate, but there will be a new heaven, there will be a new earth, and, and the, the rift between the spiritual and the natural, that won't be there, we can talk freely, we'll be able to walk freely with God and with each other, and everything will be as he promised. And why will it be so great? Because it'll be a world filled 
with God's righteousness. That's what we're, that's what we're hungry for. And it's coming. So what do we do if it's not going to be perfect today? Well, the very next sentence tells us. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort. Make every effort. Check this out. Only God is this cool. Make every effort to be found living peaceful lives, social righteousness. That are pure, moral righteousness. And to be found blameless in his sight, legal righteousness. Until future righteousness manifests upon the earth with the return of Jesus and everything being restored, until that day, as my children, as followers of Jesus, make every effort. Do stand up for what's wrong in our society. Do raise a concern. Do something. Do something about yourself. Don't speak to people that way. Forgive, love, give. Do something. And if you aren't sure you're going to heaven, if you know Jesus died, but you're, you haven't, do something. Make every effort. Make this world a better place. As we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness upon the earth. So I'm going to leave you with a challenging question. How hungry are you for God's righteousness in your life, in your world? And maybe that question can be answered by my challenge, which is, what are you going to do about it? You see, hungry people do something about it. Hunger compels you to action. When you're truly hungry, when you're obsessed you do something about it. So what are you going to do about it? Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he kind of brings this to its bottom line when he says, seek first. Above all else, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, three very important words, all these things will be added to you. What are all these things? He was just explaining all the stuff you and I need. And want the stuff we chase after house, cars, ways to get to work, jobs, food, clothing. Jesus has just been explaining, My Father in heaven knows you need all these things, all of them, and He will take care of you. He will get these things to you. Whatever you need, you're going to get. And I would go as far as to say, My experience, most of our experience has been, He doesn't just stop at need, He gives us wants. I mean, not only have we had food and clothing, we have more food and clothing than we need for any given moment. We take great vacations and we have dark chocolate. Talk about being blessed by God, everybody. Come on. You know, our problem is we're hungry for all these things. We're not hungry for the righteousness. We complain at its absence. We rant. We have a lot to say. We're not hungry for it. We're not compelled to action to do anything to bring it into our lives. No, we get up every day to figure out how to get all these things into our lives. I have a job to get all these things so I can go to a grocery store to buy all these things so I can save up to take my family on a vacation, which is all these things. We are hungry for all these. We're, we're literally living backwards and we wonder why everything isn't working. We chase the stuff that Jesus says, you have it if you chase what you need, which is the righteousness of my Father upon the earth. 
And so while we're so busy chasing the wrong stuff and complaining about the absence of the one we're supposed to be going after, Jesus came and said, I got a new idea. Blessed are those. I'm gonna leave you with this question. What if, what if, what if we turned that upside down? What if we stopped worrying about the job and the money and the everything? Because it's going to come. You're going to have a job. It's whatever. God will take care of that. You're going to have groceries. You're going to have clothes. You're going to have too many clothes. What if? What if we woke up every day and said, what can I do today to bring more moral righteousness into my life? We'll talk about that in another beatitude soon. What, what could I do today to make my world a place that reflects God's justice? And it frees people from oppression that I see around me. What if? What if? Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're going to be satisfied. We're going to be filled. We're going to have everything from these things to the righteousness of God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come to you today to say, your words are hard to do. We openly confess that they are so different from the world around us and the life that we've been taught to live by the world around us that, well, they're hard to do. So today, we just want to confess that to you, but ask you to help us, God. Help us. Would you even cause us, God, to be people who are not just angry about what's wrong, but we're hungry for what should be right. And we chase after everything we can do to bring the righteousness that you intend into our world and into our very lives. God, cause us to be people who are not satisfied, chasing all these things in the absence of being right with you. And if you just stay in a place of prayer, I want to speak to those of you that maybe you have yet to make Jesus your king, Lord and Savior, whatever words you'd want to use. You're at that place of still saying, I'm not 100% sure that I'm legally right with God. You might even say, I'm not even 5% sure. Or I'm 100% sure I'm not. Might be your story today. Once again, simple truth. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for you. So that his life and his death would earn your forgiveness and your salvation but it does require you to make an exchange of the life you've been living for the one he has for you. And if you've never done that, I wanna help you do that right now, wherever you are. Simply say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And so now, I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. My simple prayer today is that you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Everybody help me celebrate with those people. Amen.